0: Let us pray, Father God. As we just sang, Your Word is lamp unto our feet, light unto our path. Through the power of the Spirit, please
1: prove that Word to be true this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Um, we all have people in our lives who, whose love has molded us and, and to who we are. We actually most likely don't have just one person we have an array of people who have changed us who have shaped us who have guided us into a greater kind of kindness a greater kind of of living often parents or spouses or children close friends family members as we've seen in them a reflection of the love of god it's changed us and so as we open our passage today we have a pharaoh in whom hearing all the details of Joseph, and even hearing details where Joseph calls himself basically a father of wisdom to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, and seeing this scene of reconciliation, of hearing of this reconciliation between the favored son and the brothers, it changes him. It changes Pharaoh himself. It inspires him to love Joseph in new ways, and him to be want to bestow blessings upon this covenant family of joseph love changes us love shapes us and it molds us there's actually a a great story in
0: the city of geneva with john where for certain crimes the punishment they would dole out was you need to listen to more sermons that was
1: what they would decree. You, you've committed this crime. You need to listen to more sermons. And some of you are saying, yeah, I know. Listening to you is a punishment. I had had, had his a punishment hard to bear. But the idea was a little bit like what we see in Pharaoh responding to the love of Joseph and the brothers. The idea was the more you see the love of God, the more it might shape you and change you. And change who you are. That was kind of the idea behind this. And so Moses, in writing our passage today, wants to make clear such a thing happened to Pharaoh. He was changed into something better than he once was. He was more generous towards his covenant family because he saw how the unfolding of the scene of brotherly love. That God, the sovereign God of Israel, had ordained to come to pass that through this. Love flourished. And so Pharaoh opens up our passage in response to this brotherly love with asking Joseph to talk to the brothers on his behalf. Joseph serving as the crucial link between the fatherly head over the household of Egypt and the brothers of the covenant family. Telling the brothers to take what they need food-wise and, br- and bring everyone back to Goshen. It will ultimately amount to 66 people who will leave Canaan and go to Goshen. An easy way to remember that is that's the same number of chapters of books there are in the Bible or chapters in the book of Isaiah. And actually, if you remember the four additional people in Joseph's household, it will be 70 individuals from which this nation, this family of Israel, will go into a great nation in Egypt. And Pharaoh states... You really don't need to have a concern for packing up all your goods, all your things, because I'll give you better once you get here. They didn't have to bring the U-Haul with them because Pharaoh was going to give them better. What a wonderful thing to have a benefactor such as this, someone who can tell you, leave it all behind, I'll give you much better when you get here, which is in one sense a little bit like giving to the mission works and ministries of Christ that we even just did in worship right now. Isn't the act of giving of things of this world to the kingdom work in God, isn't that in one sense understanding? Yes, we have received nice things in this life, and God has blessed me with those things, but he's also promised for me that one day I will stand before his presence by the power of the favored son of the father. And he's going to then give me more than I can think or imagine. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what he will give to me. And so our being willing to part with things in this life and give is not simply just due to the fact that we can't take it with us, ideally, beyond the mortal barrier of this life, but hopefully it's more than that. It's also a statement of worship declaring, I know where I am headed in my present journey. That one day soon I will go before God himself, and I need not worry about his ability to honor his word that the best is yet to come, that he will not withhold from me the best. And so these brothers of the favored son are basically told to bring themselves
0: and their households to this land, and the rest will be taken care of. And so they are sent out in order to
1: prepare their families to come back to this land of Goshen, this land of preparation for them, and in being sent out, they will be sent out with abundant food, with changes of clothes, with even silver, they have 10 donkeys that are loaded with goods and additional 10 donkeys that are loaded with food. And Benjamin is getting a little bit more than the others, but the brothers no longer struggle with the same kind of jealousy they once did back when they were children. No, Moses, as we've pointed out several times, now calls them men. They can embrace that. And so these brothers are sent out by Pharaoh and Joseph, having received great blessings for their wilderness wandering back to Canaan. Love and reconciliation has flourished to the point that while Joseph's brothers had sent him off as a captive on the back of a camel, Joseph sends the brothers back with an armada of donkeys covered with foods and goods. While at one point the brothers had considered letting Joseph die of thirst in the pit, Joseph sends his brothers out with enough Egyptian carts that they could have a feast every day. While Joseph had been left stripped of clothes by his brothers and cast away from their presence, he sends his brothers out with new fine garments and a call to come back to him soon. While the brothers had sold him for a pittance of silver, Joseph sends them out with a small fortune. Do you see what has taken place here? Joseph has responded to every significant wicked act set out against him with things like gentleness, with kindness, and with grace. Joseph is a forebearer of what the Apostle Paul would later write down when he reflects on the fullness of the life of Christ in Romans 12, verses 20 and 21. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Imagine if we spent more time trying to love like this, overcoming evil with good. We often surrender that tactic in the public square. We so often forget how powerful of a weapon this can be, love in the face of evil. More than just Pharaoh's heart would be affected. You know, a lot of people are talking about in our own day where the American church went wrong. While I think there's plenty of false characterizations of the true American church these days, I don't want to be very careful not to slander the bride of Christ. So I I don't run too far with what I'm about to say. But let's be honest. At some point. Evangelical Christianity got pegged more as a special interest group politically. And again, there is a great many stereotypes often there in a stereotype like this. Sometimes it's truth mixed in with falsehood. But rather than a group of bold love. And for the record, I don't believe in political neutrality. I actually don't believe such an idea is even possible. You know, I actually, I think I've come more and more to believe that every government in the world is a, in one sense, a theocracy. We think of a theocracy as only Iran, but I think of France. I think of, sweden i think of america i think of mexico i think of any government in one sense as a theocracy because what is this book this book tells me in the way in which i should live when i go to the voter booth or the voter block and the democratic table tries to hand me a slip of who to vote for and the republican table tries to hand me a slip of who to vote for and what policies to vote for what are the implications of those votes it's they're telling me how to live how i should then live. We as Christians, we have a manual by which we should live and we should bring that into everything
0: we do, even into the voter booth. But that's not all the story. Our goal should be
1: that we are a people that even when they hate the things that we should stand for, as we looked at last week with Joseph, we are to be a people who advocate for life. When they hate our what Christians in majority vote in the privacy of the voter booth, they still should recognize, hopefully, that we are still a people of radical love. That you can see in this group, even if they despise them because they're theologians, they're politicians of choice who tell them how to live rather than looking to the Word of God, they can still recognize there is a unique love just as Pharaoh has recognized. Biblical Christianity still does its best work when we are radically courageous in our love in the face of evil. Not when one slightly less godless candidate wins over another one, but when ra- but radical love has... It's that which imp- impacts our greatest change. I remember one time I was ministering to the homeless and... I just had this lady and she just she was essentially in a cult, but she just wanted to berate and berate and berate. And she kept having insult after insult after insult, both towards me and what I was saying, what I was preaching. And what did I want to do in the old man? The old man, I wanted to put her in her place, you know, to seek out for revenge. And yet through the power of God, the spirit was gracious with me. And I just kept responding to every criticism, to every evil, to every wicked thing she was saying with, oh, I'm far worse than you can imagine. That's why I love Jesus so much. Oh, you don't even know the half of it. That's why I'm so thankful for my Lord and my Savior. And it just, you could see her anger just keeps kept like brewing and getting more and more frustrated with it all because in every insult, every wicked thing that she wanted to say. All I could do was declare the glory of God, the goodness of God, that she eventually just left. She had to leave the conversation. And afterwards, I had a friend come up. He just moved to Tennessee.
0: And he said, in watching that interaction, I got a better understanding of what the gospel is, of what it looks like. And that is
1: ideally what we should do in the face of evil, evil in the face of anger, that our response has the wisdom of love at its core. And sometimes, yes, love what? Love is saying a hard word. But sometimes it's also in being bold in order to declare the goodness of God in the face of our own
0: sins. And that changes people. It's a transformational love. And Joseph's story is an example
1: of this truth to us that God blesses such a love. By the way, a quick warning for those who want to display this love. Let us remember, how long does it take for this love to take root? It's over two decades in this story. You want a quick fix? That's not what the gospel, the Bible's promising here. But God gives his followers opportunities where we can stand up to evil and stand up to it with bold love, that has the power both to transform and change both us and others forever. And we should desire to live in such a way that even if the world wants to pigeonhole us by looking at the Christian worldview and uh, basically as merely a flavor of politics, because they hate what the Bible offers on how we should live, we should still desire for them to mutter under their breath in such situations those biblical Christians, though, they do know how to love. I have to give them that. Guess my while I still might not agree with them, they do know how to love. Then in verses 23 and 24, Joseph sends his brothers without him. Now, Joseph could have gone with them. In terms of a journey, Joseph could have gone there
0: and back again in less than a week. He could have been the one who reveals to his father that
1: he's still alive, but he doesn't. He sends his brothers. And so we should immediately be asking ourselves, why does he send his brothers? What
0: about this? Now, some suggest that because Moses, in writing this account
1: down for us, will not give us the full meaty details of the clear confession to the brothers' joke to the brothers, that some suggest that maybe these brothers don't fully confess their sins. Though I believe that Moses will show us they do eventually give a full confession in the passage. But Joseph, in sending his brothers out, he gives them a command to follow. The ESV puts it, do not quarrel along the way. Do not quarrel along the way. I don't love that translation. It does get at the idea that the brothers will need unity when they go down to Canaan. That's in one sense, isn't that even what Jesus prays for in John chapter 17 in the high priestly prayer? His last major prayer for the brothers is for unity. But the problem with is the Greek root of, I mean, the Hebrew root of that word is actually the word for earthquake or tremble. And so I think a better translation of what Joseph is saying is basically, do not go down weak need. Do not go down basically trembling in fear to basically stand firm, stand firm, because he knows they're going to give a confession. He knows that's going to be hard. That's going to be difficult. And so they are going to need strength, these now men. Joseph could have personally gone to share the message that he who was once believed dead is no longer dead. No, he is alive. But Joseph didn't. The one who was once thought dead rather sent out the brothers instead. And charge them to stand firm and not be weak-kneed, and share the fact that he is alive. Does that sound like anywhere else in the Bible? Someone who sends out the brothers in order to declare that the son is no longer dead, that he is actually alive, and stand firm? I think it does. And so the brothers go out, and they go out before their father, Jacob. And in their first telling to Jacob, they just get the headline of the story. Joseph is still alive. And oh, by the way, he's ruler over all of Egypt. But do you notice, there is no confession of their own sin in that first statement. And so Jacob didn't believe it. I mean, how could he? This is surreal. It's too good to be true. His son was dead in his eyes. He had held the cloth of blood, covered in blood, in a blood-soaked cloth. How could the son somehow be alive and now be a lord? How is this possible? And in not being believed the first time, they now tell their father a second time and in verse in verse 27, that Joseph is still alive. And notice what the verse says. They said all the words of Joseph in the second telling. And so if they repeated all of Joseph's words, well, we talked about those last week, back when I was in the organ chamber, right? That God, through his sovereign plan, use the brother's sin in order to save this covenant family. And so, as Moses tells us there, that he said all the words, they shared the words of Joseph. I believe that this second confession, they actually had the courage not to be shaken by fear, to to give a full confession of how Joseph became Lord in Egypt. And in this second confession, Jacob now believes And this is another opportunity for application for us Christians. Christians, we always have to remember we're not the hero of the Bible. We're not the hero of the story. I remember growing up in the church that I grew up in, the denomination I grew up in. You know, here we had this priest. And I can't remember in all my youth, not until I went to college, I could not remember a single priest ever willingly admitting the fact that they had sinned. They just would kind of tell the story of the son, the the Christ of Easter morning, but they don't tell the Christ who died on a cross for their sake and for their salvation. And the most popular pastors who have the most viewed television shows, I would just encourage you, if you're tempted by that kind of preaching, I want you to sit there with a pad of paper And ask and write down how many times in any message they talk about the fact that Christ died for your sins. That you were a criminal. And the criminal, and even though you were a criminal, he said, take my life instead of theirs. It's going to be zero. It's going to be zero for the most popular
0: guys. I promise you. You might even have zero when it comes to naming the name of Jesus.
1: And so this second confession, however, of the brothers, the fuller confession, the confession that also admitted their own sin in this matter, it gave life to Jacob and he believes it now. And we have to have the courage to remember we're not the heroes of the story. I'm not the hero. You're not the hero. Our sins are the sins that held him on the cross. He's the hero. He's the one who says, take my life instead of him. We've got to be a people who know how to reveal the generous salvation of the Son. And to do that, we have to be willing to confess our part in the crime of Jesus' story. And our part is that our sin held him there, and yet his love still held on to us in that cross. And in that union of that favored Son, as he was there, that favored Son did ultimately not let death defeat him. And mercy was shown to us, his brothers, who deserve death for our sin. That's the saving message of Christ, and it can draw new covenant family members into the family. It's the full message, not the half-measure message, that the saving power of God can be found in. And in this, the brother's fuller confession to Jacob, as we have stated, we see in verse 27, the spirit of the father revived. He's given new life. New life has come to Jacob through the son in whom he most loved, that he once thought was dead, but is no longer dead, is now alive. And now in the final verse of Genesis chapter 5, Jacob now states, I will go. And why will Jacob go? Jacob will go because Joseph's alive. And that is enough for him. And Christian, why are we called to be bold in faith? Why are we called to go places we do not want to go forth in faith? Because Jesus Christ is alive. And that is good news. That is enough. For us to go forward in strength and to go forward without fear and without trembling and without quaking. By the way, in Jacob's going, this is the beginning of God fulfilling God's promise that he made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. When the Lord said to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. They will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. That's not really an encouraging promise. But Jacob's going, so that it's not an encouraging promise because in Jacob's going, it would lead to a great suffering. But his desire to faithfully come to the son he once thought dead is worth suffering, all the pain and suffering and affliction that it might bring. So Jacob, now named Israel, still goes because that is where the son is. And so I will go. And this son has a place prepared for Jacob and his covenant family for them to settle. Where else could he go like this? So Jacob leaves all that he once had in pursuit of this son and whom he loved. And Lord, help us to have a similar courage in our life. And then in the final verses for today in chapter 46, verses 1 through 5, Jacob at the southernmost border of the promised land, that God had once said they would one day receive after a time of trial and suffering, he begins to worship God at an altar in Beersheba that his father Isaac before him had made. Beersheba was even a place where Jacob had been in his own life before being exiled from the promised land in Genesis 28, verse 10, for a period of time. And Jacob worships God at the southern tip of the promised land before venturing into the wilderness, going into Egypt, And God personally meets him there and comes to Jacob in Genesis 46, 2 and says, Jacob, Jacob, God intimately knew Jacob. Remember, Jacob had already decided to go in faith, but God is still pleased with Jacob. So intimately, he loves Jacob that while he's already on the journey to go to the place that he has called him, the place that is being prepared for him, God still says his name twice in order to, let Jacob know he goes with him. And how does Jacob respond? He responds with what so many of the faithful respond to such a beautiful moment, hearing their name twice. He says, Here I am. Here I am. Remember what happened when our parents, God first called out to our first parents, they hid after sin? They hid. They hid when God called out to them. But the more and more we move behind, move beyond the things like fear and our sin, And know of the saving God, we no longer need to be covered with fear and guilt and shame and anxiety. And we can respond to the call to God. We no longer need to hide from such a God. And we simply can cry out, Here I am, Lord, do with me as you will. Do with me as you wish. Take
0: me where I need to go. Lead me so that I might follow. Even if, like Jacob in this moment, the
1: Lord is taking. Jacob, from the homeland he loved, the place he loved, into a land which was foreign to him, and 400 years of hardship had been promised, take me, Lord, here I am. There were plenty of reasons to fear, and yet God calls Jacob by name, and so there's no real reason to fear, regardless of what transpires next, for God is with him. And then in verse 3, it is the sixth of seven messianic texts within the book of Genesis that anticipate the Messiah to come. I'm going to skip over some of that but because it's a little warm. But as Jacob is prepared to go to the foreign land for the sake of the son in whom he loves, God lets Jacob know, don't be afraid, I will make you a great nation and I will go down with you to Egypt. And then God says something that would have sounded rather odd to the ancient reader especially to the one who knows the full story of Jacob and how it will unfold. He says, I will bring you up again. And Jews would have, and then he says, Joseph will close your eyelids and die. And for like kind of the biblical literist, and the first kind of fulfillment of that passage was the idea that Jacob's lifeless body, because he dies in Egypt, is carried back into Canaan. But it doesn't seem to make sense. That doesn't seem like much of a fulfillment. Go down into Egypt, but I will carry you. You know, carry your lifeless body. That doesn't seem like I will also bring you back up again. It seems rather underwhelming in one sense. I love what Matthew Henry said on this verse when he said, no, 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 no. What's actually being said here is whatever low or dark valley we are called into at any time, we may be confident, if God goes down with us into it, that he will surely bring us back up again. If he goes with us down into death, he will surely bring us up again to glory. Jacob likely did not expect the Lord to call him to Egypt, and we too may find God calling us to do hard things for him. But like Jacob, we can be confident that he is with us, even when we must go where we do not want to go. I think there is the hint of the resurrection in this verse. And then God promises to Jacob again that Joseph will be there to close Jacob's eyelids at death. Now, not only will God raise him up from the, again, but Jacob uh, jo- jo- Joseph will be there to close his eyes. In the ancient burial practice, The ideal death was to have your kinsman, hopefully your son, be there at your bedside as you passed on so that you could see your line continued through him. And so this would have been a glorious promise for Jacob, now ripe with old age, now thinking about that last walk with the Lord into the life to come. And in the light of what God has told Jacob, Jacob leads his whole family as the closing verse ends out from the promised land into a land in which trials and suffering would come. And yet he goes towards this land in order to be reconciled towards the favored son. And he goes forward in faith. The Lord has blessed Jacob with a full promise, a promise to go wherever Jacob goes. And so Jacob then can go anywhere with the Lord which is not a bad summary of one of the key themes of scripture. It's not a story, it's it is a story where God constantly wants to make clear for us wherever we as covenant children go, he goes with us. His people go down into Egypt, he goes with us. His people go 400 years later, they leave Egypt, he goes with them. His people are in the wilderness, he goes with us. His people are in the promised land, he goes with us. His people are besieged by enemies, He goes with us as people are conquered and dispersed in the world. He goes with us. We go down into death. He goes with us. He tells us to subdue the world through the sharing of the gospel. He goes with us. What is the birth account of of Jesus in Matthew chapter one, verse 23 called Jesus? What's his first name? It's that he is Emmanuel. A quote from Isaiah chapter seven, God with us. We Christians, when we struggle with feeling forsaken, abandoned, or alone in this world, the entire Bible calls out to us, just as God by his word called out to Jacob in our text today, declaring, stop worrying, stop trembling, stop fearing, I am with you, I am here. I will be with you even when your eyelids close in death. I love you, you are mine, so stand firm. Then in hearing the good news that the favored son is alive and he has prepared a place for you, he will be there with you, even when your eyelids enclose in death. In hearing this, both for Jacob, but also for us, we then can go forth in strength. So my brothers and sisters in Christ, let
0: us go forth in strength then to the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that you give us the favored son whom even when our eyelids close in death, he will be there. And
1: it's not so much that he is the God who is sovereign over the closing of our eyes, but he will also open them afresh to a world, to a new place, a place that has been promised for us, a heavenly abode, a promised land, a place where we have a home prepared for us, So let us go forth in faith in all situations, in all moments. Let us have courage. Let us stand firm. Let us not tremble. Let us not give in to the patterned thoughts of the world, but let us have a bold love, a courageous love, that can stand in the face of enemies, under threat, under abandonment, under loss, and say, I go forth to the one
0: in whom there is mercy, there is love, and a place for me. Amen.